Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Gosh, today was really an amazing opportunity to connect with two researchers who I respect enormously, Dr. Avram Blumming and Dr. Carol Tavris, who wrote the book, Estrogen Matters. We dove deep into statistical manipulation, the influence of the Women's Health Initiative, talking about the limitations of the study, the role of data mining. We spoke at great length about the benefits of hormone replacement therapy, the impact on cancer risks, coronary artery disease, bone health, brain health, and more. We also dove into synthetic versus bioidentical hormones, routes of administrations, and things to really consider and think about in terms of our own hormonal health journey. It really was a tremendous honor to interact with doctors Blumming and Tavris. They are incredible humans, and I cannot tell you how grateful I am that they wrote this book, which really provides quite a bit of scientific information that contradicts a lot of the fear-mongering that has gone on about hormonal replacement therapy, not only for women who have not dealt with cancers themselves, but also the considerations for women that have gone through cancer therapy and the conversations that they can welcome having with their healthcare professionals. Enjoy this conversation. Well, I think, you know, it really begs to start the conversation. You know, I'm a traditional allopathic trained nurse practitioner, and certainly um, I don't think I've ever shared with my listeners that part of my graduate thesis was talking about endometrial cancer because there was one faculty member at Hopkins that I wanted desperately to work with, and that was her area of expertise. So as you can well imagine, when Women's Health Initiative results were initially shared, that changed the trajectory of so many people's lives and certainly the lives of millions and millions of women. So let's really start there because I think you both do such a beautiful job in this book, really articulating what, you know, how we got off course because up until the women's health initiative, it was commonplace and correct me if I'm wrong, that women would take hormone replacement therapy. And it was not, you know, fear mongered. Like I feel like at this point, For every 10 women, I say, you know, you really need to read this book. You really need to bring this into your physician or your nurse practitioner, whomever cares for you in in middle age and beyond. There are just as many people who are terrified of hormone replacement therapy. And I think on so many levels, I know myself, I feel so much better on hormone replacement therapy that I cannot imagine, you know, someone used the, the terminology of you know, barebacking my way through middle age without some degree of support. And and I think a great deal about brain health, and I know we'll talk more about this, but where did we get so off course and what was the, you know, kind of mindset prior to the women's health initiative study results coming out? Because it sounds like I mentioned earlier, it sounds like it was much more commonplace and it was certainly more entertained for women to be placed on some degree of hormonal support at this stage in life and beyond. Well, just to place it in some perspective, There was a period, I think, in the late 1980s when Premarin, which was the most widely form of estrogen prescribed, was the most common prescription in the United States. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and about 40% of women, and the numbers vary depending on which census you read, but about 40% of postmenopausal women were taking estrogen for some period of time. And with the Women's Health Initiative, as you pointed out, we are inherently risk averse as a species. <laughs> so that if there is something we're afraid of, and there is also a potential gain from undertaking the activity we're afraid of, as a species, we will tend to avoid the risk rather than get the gain. And the risk has been publicized in every major publication in this country and throughout the world. Mm -hmm. uh, the Women's Health Initiative, which was published in July of 2002, was a $1 billion study. That's the most expensive study in medicine ever undertaken anywhere in the world that I'm aware of. Uh, the people who were the investigators are among uh, the most prestigious investigators in our country. These are very respected people from very respected institutions. And that helped set it off. I would add to this a strand of resistance to hormone replacement from the women's movement. When I was coming up, I mean, I've been a feminist since I was born. I had no alternative. My mother said, I have a baby feminist here, you know, so, but what many women were saying was, you know what, menopause is just a natural phase of life as menarche is, and you don't want to medicalize it. You don't want to treat it. Why should you prescribe anything for it? Just a natural thing. And so if you have any symptoms, hot flashes, blah, blah, just suck it up, honey, it's going to be fine. It's going to last, you know, 20 minutes and you'll be fine. And, you know, when I was a young woman in my 30s, I kind of had the same idea. You know, it was pathologizing menopause. This seems not a good idea. And many of us, I myself included, have been very critical of big pharma's shall we say, manipulation of research to promote a new drug. You know, that's how big pharma is. So there are many feminists around the world in medicine and outside who have really been steering women away from the idea that you need to take any kind of medication in menopause. I was at a conference where a woman from Australia said, oh, please, hot flashes, no big deal. Just get a fan. You know, <laughs> Okay. Well, as Avram knows, I was very fortunate. I had no menopausal symptoms. I didn't suffer from anything. So it was really easy for me to, to scoff at this, you know, okay, fine, get a fan. But writing with Avram, of course, in our research, what I learned was that the vast majority of women have symptoms that the average length of time that women have these symptoms is seven and a half years. This is not trivial. It's not an overnight thing. And that the symptoms themselves are harmful physically and mentally to the body. You know, years without sleeping well, years of heart palpitations, hot flashes are not trivial. So I think this is an important awareness for women who have been told, yeah, menopause, no big deal, just get over it. I like Barbara Sherwin's remark in our book when she was asked, well, you know, but isn't taking hormones in menopause unnatural? She said, what's unnatural is living 30 years after menopause. That's the thing. And, you know, my work is on the benefits of estrogen for thinking and cognition, and I'm not giving it up, you know. So I think it's important to understand what the social and political trends against hormone replacement have been. I think that's such a good point because on a lot of levels, I still, you know, clinically will have discussions with women where there's a sense of guilt. Yeah. They feel guilty to even consider hormone replacement therapy, but yet they recognize the degree of brain fog 
and their decrease in mental acuity and their trouble sleeping is a huge issue. And we look beyond just the body composition. A lot of women get frustrated with, you know, hormonal weight gain that occurs in middle age. And they're just so troubled when they acknowledge that we spend, you know, a significant 40% of our lifetime in menopause. And wouldn't we want those years to still be vital and capable. And for me, because I work in the metabolic flexibility space, a lot of the worsening of those transitional symptoms or symptoms that are exacerbated even to menopause are really related to the metabolic inflexibility. So a lot of women that are having tremendous challenges making that transition or women that have insulin resistant or diabetic. And so as we start to see this population of ours, you know, in most Westernized societies becoming less physically healthy, it's exacerbating a lot of those menopausal symptoms. And I I don't think anyone that's listening should feel like they have to suffer to, you know, make that transition. I think there's so many nice options and I'm so grateful that you you know, kind of plugged in some of the methodology behind the social contributions to the considerations of what we can do during this transitional time. I just have to say, Avram has wonderful observation in relation to men. If you said to men, okay, guys, you're 50, you don't need to have sex anymore. And, you know, so what if it's painful? And so what if it's not very much fun? And, you know, so, you know, too bad you've had enough years of sex. You don't need to have any more. Just go away and, you know, (laughs) have a gin and tonic, right? I mean, he said, how many men would stand for that? You know, give me the pill now. (laughs) I want seven of them, you know. But women, you know, have been told that. Just live with this. That's not just a random observation. In fact, Prostate cancer is responsible for about as many deaths each year in men as breast cancer is in women. And the link between testosterone and prostate cancer is reasonably strong. And the question is, how many men have been told to stop testosterone or, in fact, to be castrated if they have serious prostate cancer? And what happens to these men who are castrated versus those who weren't? And the answer is that study has never been done. And by the way, it never will be done because men simply wouldn't allow any group to manipulate their bodies the way women have allowed medicine to manipulate their bodies. I think that's a really important distinction that if we look at gender specific variables as they pertain to these discussions that women in many ways, and I know that in the book and certainly in other interviews that I've listened to that both of you have done, when you look at the way that, you know, women were viewed going through menopause, it was histrionics. It was taking out different types of organs to try to see if it had a net impact or improvement and how they felt on many levels. I've had patients, you know, my whole background's in ER medicine and cardiology. So about as far away from this discussion topic as we could have today and the discussions that I've had with male and female patients, when they talk about these kinds of issues, both men who've gone through significant prostate history and no longer can have an erection and they're dealing with those sexual side effects. And then women disclosing, you know, privately some of the challenges that they're experiencing. And they just say, this isn't the way that I anticipated my middle-aged years would go. This is really quite a shock, but I think there's so much conventional kind of methodology. When, even when I talk to my female family members who are very well-educated and certainly have been very successful whatever they were told when the women's health initiative came out, they didn't even question it. 
they just stopped everything. They stopped all their hormone replacement therapy. And now 20 plus years later, we're starting to see some of the side effects. We've had very open discussions with many of my female family members who have been in menopause for 20 plus years and the side effects, especially the brain changes. And I know we'll, we'll touch on some of these things with the lack of estradiol and progesterone and testosterone signaling has really been concerning for them. And I would love for you to speak to, you know, the fear that so many of, I'm sure your patients and the clients that you interact with, are these the same types of concerns that people have been echoing over the past 20 years? This is not the way that I thought my life was going to be. What can I do about it? Finding clinicians that are willing to prescribe hormone replacement therapy, despite what the Women's Health Initiative shared so many years ago. I want to just interject one very quick point on the subject of testosterone and estrogen, which is I had always assumed that estrogen for women decline in menopause declined slowly, modestly in the way that testosterone does. It just sort of slows. It's just sort of a modest decline. What I learned in working on this book with Avram is that it doesn't decline. It plummets to 1% of what women's estrogen levels were before menopause. What? You know, that's like, that's not a slow decline that you can live with. That's emptying the gas tank. And, you know, so it's very different in that respect. It becomes more understandable that we really are experiencing a major loss of an important hormone that function that affects every single tissue in our bodies. So that's an important, I think, uh, understanding for women to have. Is there a question on the table? <laughs> the question, what's the question? Let's see. Oh. What can women do? Well, you raised this issue that 20 years ago, I mean, I remember the immediate panic after the Women's Health Initiative came out. Doctors were saying their offices were flooded with calls from alarmed and panicked women. And one of the most disgraceful things about that with the August New York Times and its blaring headlines on the press conference was that the article itself in JAMA did not come out for what was it, Avram, weeks or a month or something? It was, it was a week and a half. Okay, so doctors get these panic calls and don't even those who want to read the actual data, which I have to say is not so many of them, they live by headlines like the rest of us, didn't even have an article to go to, to check the data. I called my gynecologist and he said, I don't believe this for one millisecond. And I'm waiting for the article to come out. And, you know, but he was rare. He was scientifically minded and he wanted to actually see the evidence. Medical studies usually come out in the medical journal first. And the medical journal will then contact the press and they will put it in the media. That's not the way this worked. As Carol said, this article came out first in the media so that physicians didn't see it at the time it was announced worldwide. In addition, only three of the investigators in the Women's Health Initiative wrote that article. There were 40. over 40 investigators and when the 40 investigators were told about the article, most of them said, wait a minute, we don't agree with that. And they were then told, well, the article isn't yet in print, but it has been submitted to the Journal of the American Medical Association. And we happen to be in Chicago. And if you just run down the street <laughs> to the, the publishing office, see what you can do to change it. And they ran down the street and they were told, I'm sorry, it's already been printed and it's going out within a week. And that inside view didn't really come out until uh, Robert Langer, one of the Women's Health Initiatives, published that insider's view over 12 years after the Women's Health Initiative 
came out. And the Women's Health Initiative said what, what we wanted to do is in an unbiased way, evaluate whether hormone replacement therapy was good or bad since it's being used so widely. And the unbiased nature of that was challenged when an article written by the lead investigator of the Women's Health Initiative published an article several years before saying it's time to put an end to the estrogen bandwagon. That guy gets to lead the Women's Health Initiative. I mean, really. And he succeeded. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one, -on -one, interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 
12 month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. And he's and obviously so biased. And I think it's important for anyone that's listening that maybe is not familiar with this Women's Health Initiative the health of the participants. And this is something that really stood out for me because I went down this rabbit hole after I listened to your podcast with Peter Atia, recognizing that this wasn't even a healthy population of women that were selected for the study. And I think this is important for people to understand. It wasn't a selection of women that were in early menopause and ended up being women that were in their sixties with multiple comorbidities and whether they were obese or overweight and prior smoking and high blood pressure or hypertension and so the data from the very beginning was already skewed. In fairness to the investigators, what they said is our major area of interest is not breast cancer. It's really heart disease. Mm -hmm. And we want to see whether what we hear about estrogen in that it significantly prevents the risk of serious heart disease, we want to see if that's valid. And so rather than take women who were between the ages of 45 and 51, around the time when menopause usually starts, they started with a population that had a median age of 63, so that if there would be cardiac events, they would happen sooner. That means the study could be shorter and therefore less expensive. That's a reasonable reason to do the study. The problem, as you point out, is that that population which wasn't a normal female population. Half the women were overweight. A significant portion were smokers. A significant portion were obese. And if you start hormones over 10 years after your last menstrual period, you already have blood vessels that have been narrowed by age. That happens to all of us. Estrogen can cause platelets, which are small corks that circulate in the blood and help prevent bleeding. Estrogen can cause these platelets to clump. If a platelet clump enters an already narrowed vessel, it can block the blood flow through that vessel and it can compromise blood, especially to the heart or to the brain. And so at least for the first year, after the Women's Health Initiative uh, report, what they found during the first year of the study is there was an increased risk, small but real, of heart attacks and strokes. They have subsequently walked back what they said, and they now say that there is a 10-year window of opportunity. So a woman 
who mm -hmm. starts hormones within 10 years of her last menstrual period actually has reduced risk of heart disease, reduced risk of strokes, and improved longevity. And that 10-year window has allowed the investigators of the Women's Health Initiative to walk back every single adverse effect they spoke about, even estrogen. They now report after 20 years of follow-up that women who take estrogen as hormone replacement therapy have a reduced risk of breast cancer that is significant by 23% and have a reduced risk of death from all causes. The only argument we still have with the Women's Health Initiative is whether the combination of estrogen and progesterone used as hormone replacement therapy increases the risk of breast cancer. And remember I said that breast cancer was not their primary area of interest. It was a secondary area of interest, but breast cancer made the headlines. Breast cancer is the red flag. Breast cancer is the reason that the uh, frequency of hormone prescriptions fell so precipitously. And the women who are terrified of taking hormone replacement therapy are terrified of breast cancer. And what's interesting for listeners who may not be aware of this, we as women are actually more likely to die of cardiovascular disease than we are of breast cancer, but yet there's not enough focus on that. And I think that's certainly something that's really important for us to understand. One thing that breast, you mentioned- Breast cancer survivors themselves are more likely to die of heart disease than of breast cancer recurrence. Uh, yeah. It's staggering, right? Yeah, it's and unbelievable. Remember, Cynthia, when people say, well, more women die of heart disease than die of breast cancer, the usual response is, well, but old women die of heart disease and young women die of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. In point of fact, for every decade after the age of 40, more women die of heart disease than die of breast cancer. And that difference increases every decade. And estrogen, we now accept, reduces the risk of heart disease by up to 50%. And that's really significant. You know, my whole background as a nurse practitioner has been in working predominantly for 16 years in cardiovascular disease. And I can't tell you how many patients of mine would tell me I felt great while taking hormone replacement therapy. But since I've had a heart attack, I'm no longer allowed to be on hormonal therapies. And, you know, they would talk to me and, and I know in your book, you are very transparent about your wife and your daughter and the choices that they made after being diagnosed with cancer. And so I think it's, I've just been sharing your work so much. I think that it's really important for us to be having these discussions. One thing that I thought was really interesting when it's specific to talking about cardiovascular disease in particular is that, you know, the leading cause of death in the United States, 298,000 people is more than seven times the number projected to die from breast cancer. So our focus is really on the wrong thing that HRT actually gives you a 50% reduction in the risk of coronary event in women with unopposed oral estrogen and then estrogen and progesterone together is better in reducing the risk of myocardial infarction. So heart attacks really important for people to understand that. And you've already touched on the changes that go along intravascularly. So inside those vessel walls that estrogen actually helps dilate the blood vessels, that there are all these small vessel changes that occur 
later in life, I know when I was working clinically in cardiology, the thought process was women present differently with cardiovascular disease. They present uh, later. So by the time they usually get diagnosed, it's much more progressive, but we also talk a lot about the small vessel disease. And I wonder how much of that is really related to this decrease in the elasticity in the blood vessels themselves with the loss of estradiol. Yes, estrogen does increase the ability of blood vessels to dilate. It keeps them younger. They're more elastic. Uh, they don't compromise an end organ when you're exercising because blood supply can be increased. But as we said earlier, blood vessels that are already sclerotic, blood vessels that are already narrowed, are at risk of being further compromised by platelet clumps that estrogen can cause. Uh, so that especially in women who have had uh, heart attacks before, uh, taking hormones must be a balanced risk benefit. It's not something we would say everybody should do. Well, and I would say you've had so many uh, messages from, from women saying, wait a minute, I'm 65 now and I just read your book. Can I start taking estrogen right now, please? You know, And of course, the answer is they've been past that 10-year window, most of them, with the issue that Avram just mentioned in the first year of, of beginning hormones. Which so, doesn't mean no, they can't. Exactly. But it means they should initiate a discussion with their physicians, look at where they stand individually, and then discuss benefit versus risk so that it is a joint decision of an informed physician with an informed patient and not some kind of dictatorial statement from the doctor saying, I don't even want to talk about it. Exactly. And of course, for a woman past menopause, the question of whether she has high risk factors for Alzheimer's or for bone fracture, for osteoporosis, or for any of the other things that we know estrogen is really beneficial in preventing. So that's also part of that calculation, right? Absolutely. I think bioindividuality rules and what we're all speaking from as a place of advocacy, having the discussion, making sure you're having those conversations with your healthcare professionals. I would love to touch on bone health because as someone who is a thin framed Caucasian woman with a strong family history of osteoporosis, I was shocked to realize the insignificance of the term osteopenia, because this was <laughs> one of the things that my GYN came after me about and said, you know, you're already, you know, at this time I was still in my forties, you're in your forties, you're oste already osteopenic. I would love to kind of touch on this because bone health is obviously, and you're laughing already, you know, where I'm going, you know, the insignificance of osteopenia that, you know, even the world health organization doesn't acknowledge this, this new age social construction, I'm using your words invented and sustained by marketers, drug companies, and other vested interests. You betcha. I've been ranting about osteopenia for so long, I can barely remember when I started. <laughs> so osteopenia is, one, is a particularly annoying <laughs> phenomenon for me, but it's part of the many, well, you know, what I mentioned earlier about medicalization, there is a big incentive for the pharmaceutical industry to create disorders that can then be treated with, we just happen to have a drug for this. If we don't have a drug for it, then never mind, it's not a condition. But we see this in many domains in which there is a medical concern, let's say problems with heart, 
or bones or whatever else. So by expanding the boundaries of how we define what the disorder is, we can expand the number of people that we can treat or that we can offer our services to. So osteoporosis is a diagnosable condition, of course, but wait, what about people who are pre-osteoporotic? What are we going to do with them? Well, they aren't, they don't have it yet. But uh, so osteopenia was just a manufactured term for women who didn't have osteoporosis, but might. Well, if if you're measuring bones with somebody who's 50 or 55 and you say, you know what, your bones aren't as strong as they were when you were 20. Well, yeah, (laughs) not much is the same as it was when I was 20. So why is this a condition that needs treatment? Again, my wonderful gynecologist, who, of course, had gotten the machine to measure bones density and so forth, because it was such a great machine, and he could now give it to put all his patients. And he said, you have osteopenia, and then he burst out laughing, So we, which we both did. But many do not, of course. And by the way, it's also the same with other things such as cholesterol measurements to determine whether you need to have a need to have a statin. The drop in the levels of cholesterol that are that supposedly warrant statins contributed to making statins the biggest selling drug of the century, I would say. Okay. Whereas we know, so the routine prescription of statins for women who have not had a heart attack, who do not have heart disease, but they get, if their cholesterol is high enough, well, we better give you a statin, honey. Well, there's no evidence that it reduces their risk of heart attack or mortality from heart disease. The evidence is really evidence on male studies. Mm -hmm. And traditionally, medical studies have been done on men. The results were then extrapolated to women who are sort of like men, but not (laughs) Really. And Bernadine Healy, who was the first and thus far the only head of the National Institutes of Health in the United States, also a cardiologist, said it's time we had a study for women about women. And the Women's Health Initiative really developed at the instigation of Bernadine Healy, who wrote a book in 1995 saying, From what I know, based on largely cardiology studies, but from everything, as soon as I reach menopause, I will start hormones without a blink. Mm -hmm. If Bernadine Healy knew what the Women's Health Initiative had evolved into and what it had caused, Mm -hmm. she would turn over in her grave. She sadly died. There are two statements I'd like to make. One, Carol always insists that we say this, Mm -hmm. which is, Carol and I are not on the payroll of any pharmaceutical house of any industry at all, that the only interaction I ever had with a pharmaceutical firm was I was called as an expert witness to testify in a case where a woman was suing a pharmaceutical house for having taken uh, hormones and developed breast cancer. And I was paid on an hourly basis. And that's the only relationship we have, and we stick by that. In addition, when we talk about osteoporosis and hip fracture, it's worth saying first that approximately as many women will die during the first year after a hip fracture as die annually of breast cancer. And it's not because of an underlying condition that may have been responsible for the hip fracture, it's because of the complications of the hip fracture. And hormones 
estrogen especially, but also progesterone, will reduce the risk of osteoporotic hip fracture by up to 50%. Having said that, Carol spoke about this wonderful machine that her gynecologist has. <laughs> In fact, the best way to check for bone fragility or loss of the tensile strength of bone, which means how much you can bend bone before it breaks, the best thing to do is to take a long bone in the body and put it in a vise and exert pressure and see just how much pressure is required before you break the bone. And clearly that's not a feasible test to do. And so instead, bone mineral density is being used to test for osteoporosis. And it's not a great test. It's the best we have, but it's not a great test. And osteopenia, we've already discussed, that's nothing. But clearly, women get bone fractures, even if they don't have reduced bone mineral density, and people with good bone mineral density, which really means the calcium shell on the bone, not the intrinsic tensile strength of the bone. People with good mineral density can also get fracture, and estrogen reduces that risk across the board. Avram, I want to underscore what you said, maybe make this point more clearly, because many women have been told, just take calcium. Just take enough calcium, dear, with maybe some vitamin D, and that will keep your bones strong. And that's exactly the wrong thing. Would you like to comment on that, please? Sure. Calcium and vitamin D uh, were advertised heavily around the same time the bone mineral density study was able to diagnose osteopenia. I remember Lauren Hutton, a model, was on the air pushing that extensively. And what you do with calcium and vitamin D, as I mentioned, is you can strengthen the shell of the bone, which, if anything, makes the bone less flexible but it does nothing to the tensile strength of the bone. If you are just interested in bone mineral density, if you take a lot of fluoride, and I am not recommending this, <laughs> but if you take a lot of fluoride, your bones will be incredibly dense. You will walk home with a 10-10 for your bone mineral density, and your risk of hip fracture will be increased. And so calcium and vitamin D can help improve bone strength in a premenopausal woman or a woman on hormones, especially one who exercises so she was also strengthening her bones. But in a postmenopausal woman, not on hormones, these two agents do nothing. I'm so glad that you brought that up because this is a question that gets asked so frequently across social media, so much so that my team actually, we now have a canned response about that specifically. So very important that everyone understands calcium and vitamin D does not prevent or treat bone loss. And that's an important distinction. However, we know estrogen and progesterone and hormone replacement therapy can be an, an, a, certainly an important addition to that. I would love to kind of touch on the impact of hormone replacement therapy on brain health. I think as I get older, I start taking greater concern slash interest in all things, cognitive function and brain health. And I think that there's so much concern about how women's brains change going from, you know, peak cycling years, perimenopause into menopause, 12 months without a menstrual cycle and how they're, they seem to be at greater risk for type three diabetes or Alzheimer's and I don't know if it's all attributable to the loss of estradiol signaling in the brain, or it's also a combination of 
insulin resistance, and we know that estradiol can be very insulin sensitizing. What are your thoughts on this? And as it pertains specifically to menopausal brains? Well, we spoke about fear being a very strong motivator. And if there is one thing that women fear even more than breast cancer, which by the way, is 90% curable when diagnosed early and appropriately, is cognitive decline, Alzheimer's disease being the most famous form of that. And estrogen will reduce the risk of cognitive decline, depending on which study you read, by between 25 and 65%. People say, well, there's never been a prospective randomized study of that. That's true. But you can't study cognitive decline over 20 years to afford the study and make it an unchallengeable study. But the data are reasonably consistent in that. You mentioned uh, briefly, my wife had breast cancer. When we treated her with chemotherapy, she went into a precipitous menopause and she was able to tolerate the hot flashes and the night sweats and even the palpitations, although they were annoying, what she couldn't tolerate is she is very bright and reads a great deal. And she found that she was unable to remember two pages back in a book that she was reading, and that was intolerable. And when we placed her on hormone replacement, well, when she elected to take hormone replacement therapy, she's back and (laughs) she's as bright as ever and remembers everything. You know, I'm fascinated by medical detective stories. As a social psychologist, one of the things that's always fascinated me that, you know, even scientists, even doctors, when they are so blinded by a belief, so convinced that something is so, that they become blind to their own data. They don't see their own numbers in their own study. And one of the great questions we get so often is, why did the investigators of the Women's Health Initiative strangle their data to come out with scary findings that are not there? We don't have an answer to this, but as we delved into what the Women's Health Initiative papers and findings were, it was truly an astonishing story. So take dementia, take dementia and hormone. One of the big scare stories, taking HRT increases a woman's risk of dementia. Ooh, really? Oh my God, let's scare us even further. It's not just breast cancer, it's dementia and it's heart attack and stroke and a thousand different, okay, fine. So we look at the, what they did with dementia. What they did was they're doing now a sub-study of their major sample. So we now eliminate all the women with healthy cognitive functioning. We just leave them out. And now we take a sub-sample of women who already have mild cognitive impairment and we follow them over time. And guess what? We discover that women with mild cognitive impairment get worse. We don't even look to see whether women who do not have mild cognitive impairment are how they are affected by taking hormones. They manipulated their data this way in a, you know, on almost every scare story that they came out with. And interestingly, as I say, for me as a social psychologist, where are the headlines? Where's the press conference? Where is the press conference now, 20 years later saying, hey, everybody, guess what? We're really sorry. We scared y'all, but actually we were wrong. (laughs) We apologize. They come out with paper after paper showing this, but there has been no national attention to this walking back of their original findings the way there was to begin with. Uh, We have, our publisher let us 
write up an afterword to our book, which had come out a few years ago, and editions of the book going forward will have this new afterword. But basically what it says is the Women's Health Initiative has walked back almost just every single one of its early scare findings. We're still waiting for the press conference. The best example of the manipulation of data is a year after the Women's Health Initiative was first published in July of 2002, there was a 2003 paper saying that uh, hormones have no effect on women's quality of life. Oh, yes, and, that was good. And the question is, <laughs> what planet were you studying? Because clearly on this planet, that's not valid. And that was the abstract and the headline. In fact, Gina Colada in the New York Times wrote a piece saying, not only do hormones do all these bad things, it doesn't even improve quality of life. Well, when you look at the study and you have to read the article, the article said this is a prospective double-blind randomized study, which means neither the patients nor the physician knew whether the patient was getting the hormone or a placebo pill. And we, the investigators, knew that symptomatic women, women with menopausal symptoms, who were randomized to placebo would drop out of the study. And we didn't want to lose so many women entering the study. So we selectively chose only those women who didn't have symptoms. And by the way, <laughs> the women who didn't have symptoms had no improvement in the <laughs> symptoms they didn't have, even if they got hormones. And you make when, this you, up. when you look even further, they said, well, actually 13% of the women did have symptoms. And yes, those 13% did have significant improvement, but they were swallowed up by the other 87% that didn't have symptoms. And so the overall conclusion is it has no effect on quality of life. That's just unbelievable. There was a term in your book that I wanted to interject because it seems timely, data mining. The concept of data mining, it's when researchers fail to find a statistically significant association that they hypothesize would exist between a possible risk factor and a disease, go back into their data and rummage around looking for factors that might show a statistical link. Mm -hmm. There must be a pony in here somewhere, right? That's what that's about. There's a very good example of that. In Lancet, there was a study published showing that uh, men who were admitted to the hospital with a heart attack who took aspirin had a better overall prognosis. They did better, they survived better than men who weren't on aspirin at the time they had their heart attack. And they sent that article into The Lancet, which is a very prestigious British publication. And The Lancet editor said, well, we like that study and we'd like to publish it, but we'd like you to stratify the population. We want to know the age of the men and the race of the men and maybe what they ate. And the author <laughs> said, well, we didn't study that. And those might be appropriate future studies but we didn't study that beforehand. We didn't, diag we didn't state that that was what we were going to be studying. And so why don't you just publish our overall result? And then these additional studies could be done later. And Lancet said, if you don't stratify your population that way, retrospectively, we're not going to publish the paper. 
Good enough, the author said, we'll stratify. <laughs> and they did. They stratified by everything, including astrological sign. And they found <laughs> that men born under two astrological signs, it might have been Leo and Taurus, but I don't remember, actually did better than men who were born under all the other astrological <laughs> signs, whether or not they got aspirin. <laughs> and so the editors of Lancet said, well, we will accept the paper now, but you have to lose the astrology. <laughs> and the author said, not a chance. You wanted us to substratify. You published the paper. And they did. And so the paper is published with the astrological signs. But it points out the absurdity of substratifying already studied data. Let me add an explanation of why you don't get to do this. It seems counterintuitive that you shouldn't be able to go back and rummage in your data and see what might be lurking there. And the reason is that when you're doing a study, especially in epidemiology, where you have many, many hundreds or even thousands of people in your study, the thing you're looking to study is what you're looking to study. But if you then go back in and look for other relationships, you will find some that are significant just by chance like the astrology finding, just by chance. But because it's not been part of your original study protocol, you don't know if that's a chance effect or a real one. And if, by the way, you see it, you don't publish it, you then go and do a study and say, gee, does astrology really make a difference with heart disease? So it seems counterintuitive, but it's really important to understand. And we saw in our book over and over again, over and over and over again, when researchers failed to find a connection between HRT and some disease or concern, notably breast cancer, they didn't say, what good news? Hooray, there's no relation between HRT and breast cancer. Let's go publish that. No, they said, there's got to be something bad in here somewhere. Let's just keep going until we find it. And sometimes their findings were just as preposterous as the astrology. And, you know, among 10 women, you know, six were more likely to get breast cancer. I mean, the numbers were preposterous, but those got the publications and the attention. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product with five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com 
com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia 10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia 10 for 10% off any order. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armour Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armour's Colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And Armour's colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out really amazing when you think about it, that the more we understand about how research is done, you know, there's good research, there's bad research. There are people who have high integrity and are doing research and then others who are not, but ultimately it can trickle down to our lives. And that's why it's so important that we're made aware of what goes on. I would love to touch on, and I know this is a probably a hot topic. You get this question quite a bit when we're talking about synthetic hormones versus bioidenticals. There were a lot of questions when I indicated on social media that we were connecting that women really wanted to better understand the existing research as their superiority of one over the other, because there's so much misinformation along with compounding. That's another kind of hot topic, a lot of confusion and analysis paralysis. (laughs) Well, each one of us could talk about this for the next hour and a half. (laughs) Let me try to summarize it in just a few sentences. First, the word synthetic is pejorative. Any hormone that you buy from any pharmacy doesn't come straight from whatever. It is processed (laughs) intensively. The Women's Health Initiative used uh, Premarin as their form of estrogen. Uh, Premarin is an acronym for pregnant mare urine. And you can't say pregnant mare urine. Nobody would buy it. So (laughs) Premarin. And because the Women's Health Initiative incorrectly showed that hormones do these bad things, uh, it was a marketing niche so people could say, well, sure, Premarin is bad. But 
I have something here which isn't Premarin, which is hormones, and whatever words you want to use to market it, I'm going to use. So that bioidentical sounds really good, bioidentical. Does that mean you're taking it from another human being and it's just like mine? No, actually, we're taking it from a yam. Well, I'm not a yam. Well, no, but we can work on the yam, put it through a lot of chemical processes, and we can extract estradiol, which is the form of estrogen that is the most common, the most concentrated form of estrogen in the body of a premenopausal woman. And we will give you estradiol. And to help sell it, we're going to call it bioidentical. And boy, did it work. So that it isn't Premarin, it's bioidentical, whatever, and it sells very well. It is only estradiol or almost only estradiol. Premarin has at least 10 different estrogenic compounds in it. And Premarin is the best studied. We've studied Premarin now over 60 years. We know more about its benefit and its problems than any other form of hormone. And it's for that reason only that I like Premarin. One investigator once said to me, uh, this isn't the major investigator and has nothing to do with the Women's Health Initiative. Well, why would a woman want to taste a pill that tastes like urine? And so I had to take a Premarin and bite into it. I didn't swallow, but it doesn't taste like anything. (laughs) Right, no surprise. Uh, Bioidenticals did so well that there are now people around the world who say, I'm going to customize your hormones. I'm going to take samples of your urine and your hair and your saliva. I'm going to see exactly what you need. And I'm going to fashion a hormone formula that will be developed just for you. Well, bioidentical hormones, never mind the name, that are FDA approved and put out by uh, respected pharmaceutical companies are fine. Uh, We could talk about the differences between Premarin and those, but uh, Carol and I have no problem with those. Compounded bioidentical hormones are done by individual pharmacies along the lines that This is compounded, especially for Miss or Mrs. X. Well, first, that kind of specialization is inappropriate. We don't know enough to be able to make individual preparations for people. It doesn't really matter. Uh, There are ways of assessing adequacy of hormone replacement, and that's not one of them. But my biggest problem with that is compounded bioidentical hormones are not FDA approved. And the few studies that have been done looking at the quality control within compounded bioidentical hormones have found wide variation so that although there are compounding pharmacies that are meticulous and do a very good job Uh, Many, many compounded bioidentical hormones have either little or too much hormones in them, and it's just not a responsible way of prescribing hormones. The one exception 
might be in women who are allergic to components of hormones who really need preparations that are made for them and made without the allergen that can cause an allergic reaction in them. That's more than two sentences, but that's what I <laughs> And I would add to this that this has been a way. Women have known that estrogen benefits them and that they feel better when they're on estrogen. So these products, and you know, you go into a drugstore and you see a zillion things with estrogen-like names. So, you know what? So the idea is, okay, you're not supposed to have real estrogen because we know it causes breast cancer. But since we also know that you want to take estrogen, here are these estrogen-like products that actually don't contain estrogen or that contain estradiol. I mean, it's a way to help women take, direct them to what they know will benefit them, but without the fear. And I would say one other thing about this targeted to each woman, you know, this is your own medication, especially for you. I think it also reflects the uncertainty, loneliness, and anxiety that women in menopause feel in a culture that is so disdainful of menopause. Because menopause for women raises so many psychological concerns, of course, you know, a change of life, right? And I'm getting older, and this is changing, and that's changing, and I don't like any of it, and what can I do? And it's still considered, what, unseemly, slightly squeamish to be talking about menopause. And so here's a doctor saying, just sit down here, honey. <laughs> you know, let me spend time talking about, to you about your feelings and how you're responding to menopause and what your body is saying. That in itself is, I think, what many women are seeking. You know, somebody taking their symptoms seriously, not dismissing them, not trivializing them, but maybe not giving them the best appropriate medication either. I think that's a really good point. And it's, it's something that now that I'm a middle-aged person, I am exquisitely sensitive to the terminology, the words that women use, the language that women use to describe themselves, how they feel. Yeah. In fact, I oftentimes will take notes when I'm working with patients because sometimes it's painful for me to hear how they feel invisible, invalidated, negated, and oftentimes they feel talked down to. I just want to touch on two more things. I want to be respectful of your time. I got a lot of questions about route of administration for estrogen in particular, because for listeners, you route of administration is speaking to oral transdermal, you know, absorbed through the skin, intravaginal estrogen, because there appears to be, again, a lot of misinformation. There are a lot of women who want to take estrogen, but they're not sure what the best route of administration is. I know I probably have a preference, but Obviously, this is something I'm not doing with as much frequency as I once did. What are your feelings? What has been your experience in terms of what has worked most effectively and what has protected women the most? Genitourinary syndrome is the syndrome where a woman has drying vaginal mucosa so that it can burn when you urinate. Frequent urinary tract infections can complicate your life. Sex is not only not desirable, it's often painful, even if you force yourself to have it. And if that's your major symptom, and that affects the overwhelming majority of menopausal women, and unlike most of the symptoms of menopause, which might clear over a median follow-up of seven and a half years, as Carol said, that just gets worse and worse. And intravaginal or transvaginal estrogen is very good treatment for that. And to date, that is approved without reservation. 
that doesn't seem to be a problem. Women with a history of breast cancer can take it. It's not an issue. And I don't know anybody who puts up an argument against intravaginal or transvaginal estrogen. I just want to add one, Please. if I may interrupt, just one point about this, Always. because I know a number of sex therapists and sex researchers who tell them that they tell their patients, go home and get, you know, get a vaginal tablet that's completely safe. Even the Women's Health Initiative says it's completely safe. And they get it, they go home and they read the instructions where there is a black box warning that's still there from the FDA. This medication increases your risk of breast cancer and uterine cancer and hangnails. Don't take this. And so they don't, you know, they say, gee, we'd I'd rather not have sex than die. (laughs) So so just to say that those alarmist warnings are still with that product. Okay. And that brings us to the pill versus the patch or the gel. And most of the studies have been done on the pill, on oral administration. And the pill helps brain function better than the gel. And the pill may be better protective for heart disease in the future more than the gel. And these differences are very small, which is why it's important that you have a discussion with your doctor and work out what's best for you. The biggest advantage to the gel over the pill is there is a lower risk of venous clots, of clots in veins called thrombophlebitis. And it's important to separate a clot that develops in a vein, which can cause swelling of your leg usually, and a clot that develops in an artery, which can block circulation to your heart or your brain. And we're talking about clots that develop in the leg, in the vein, not in the artery. The difference is very small. The difference is something like 20 out of 100,000 women taking hormones for a year will develop a clot in a vein compared to women who aren't taking hormones for a year. 20 people out of 100,000. It's actually 20 out of 100,000 for women who don't take anything, 40 under 100,000 who take the pill, and 60 out of 100,000 of women who are pregnant. That's a risk, but it's clearly a very small risk. And if I can just circle around to one other thing, we've spoken about breast cancer. We've spoken how it's a red flag. We mentioned that estrogen alone decreases the risk of breast cancer by 23%, that the major standing finding of the Women's Health Initiative is the combination of estrogen and progesterone, they say, increases the risk of breast cancer. And Carol and I challenged that and it's challenged in the medical literature, and this will be in the forward, the afterward as well. What the Women's Health Initiative found is progesterone is given to women who are taking estrogen and still have a uterus because estrogen alone does increase the risk of endometrial cancer or uterine cancer. And if you take progesterone as part of your hormone replacement therapy, that increased risk is eliminated. And so uh, women who are taking the combination are still told, well, that can increase your risk of breast cancer. That's really strange. We used to think in a simple way that estrogen causes breast cancer. After all, it happens 100 times more common in women than in men. It must be estrogen. And one of the things the Women Health Initiative did tell us 
is actually followed now for over 20 years, although they took it for only two years. There was no increased risk of breast cancer. There was even a decreased risk of breast cancer. Progesterone, women who are congenitally deficient in progesterone have five times the risk of developing breast cancer compared to women who aren't deficient in progesterone. Progesterone is as effective as tamoxifen in the treatment of measurable growing breast cancer. So why should the combination of estrogen and progesterone increase the risk of breast cancer? Well, it doesn't. (laughs) What the Women's Health Initiative found is if you look at the women who got estrogen and progesterone and compared them to the women who got a placebo, there was an increased risk. But it wasn't that there was an increased risk among the women taking the hormones. There was a decreased risk among the women who were taking placebo. And that is a different placebo group than the group that was compared with the group taking estrogen alone. And that's an increased risk. But the increased risk isn't because of something that the combination is doing. The question is, why does that particular control group have a reduced risk of breast cancer? And the answer is women in that control group, a significant number, had been taking estrogen before entering the study and being randomized to the placebo. And we just said that estrogen seems to decrease the risk of breast cancer. If you reanalyze the data, and simply eliminate the women who had been taking estrogen before starting placebo, the control group risk rises and the difference disappears. And thus far, the Women's Health Initiative hasn't addressed that issue, although it was reported in several journal articles challenging them. They haven't responded to it thus far. And by the way, even the Women's Health Initiative that said there's an increased risk of breast cancer if you take the combination, a statement we are challenging, say, but there's no increased risk of death from breast cancer if you were taking hormones. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been an incredible conversation. I could probably speak to you both for hours. What are you working on next? Are you doing any new book? Are you, I know that now things are starting to open up at the tail end of the pandemic, I hope. There'll probably be more speaking opportunities for you as well. The silence (laughs) is really the unknown. As you might be able to tell from this interview, Carol and I really enjoy working together. I mean, how could you not enjoy Mm -hmm. working with Carol now that you see who who she is? I feel that way about him, you know. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm looking forward to a lunch date that we're going to have in a week, which is really nice. Long-term plans are all in abeyance until we see what happens with the pandemic and the world. My God, we are right on the threshold of a possible war in Europe, which is frightening. As far as writing another book, we actually are halfway through a book that we wrote before this one, but I'm not sure that's going to develop into a book, and we'll have to see. Have to see. Carol? And I continue writing about mistakes in science and medicine, the resistance of people to 
admit they might have been wrong in a belief. My book with Elliot Aronson, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me, could have had a whole chapter on the estrogen HRT issue because it's about how difficult it is for people to change their minds when the evidence finally shows them it's time. Well, we've seen that in our country, have we not? With vaccines and with health issues of all kinds, the polarization of these issues, and what does it take to get people to say, you know, I was wrong, not such an easy thing. So that keeps me rather busy. And of course, I often use the HRT example um, in my own talks and writings. So that's what we're doing. No, thank you so much for your contributions. As I stated before, and I've been very transparent with my listeners that I believe in taking inspired action and listened to your podcast in November and immediately reached out and I got an immediate response. And so I'm so very grateful that your incredible book, which is part of my must reads for my ladies. I'm so grateful for the work that you both are doing and look forward to continuing to follow your progress. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFOS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.